things I like about the Bible is that it asks and answers some very important questions, especially in James, which is rooted in what we're supposed to do with the faith that we profess. Uh, James asks and answers a couple of important questions in this section that we're looking at when we talk about the good life. First question, who is wise and understanding among you? Let's see hands. Uh, (laughs) Let him show it. This is what James says in answer to that question. Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. We're in the middle of a series walking through James 3 through 4, and we're talking about the good life. That's what he talks about. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by the good life. What is the good life? It describes it as deeds done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. Wisdom is spiritual intelligence. We talk about IQ, intellectual intelligence, EQ, emotional intelligence, SQ, spiritual intelligence. You think that that would be dependent on what we know, but it really isn't biblically. Wisdom is not reflected in what we know. It's, It's reflected in what we do, specifically how we treat other people. And that's why it speaks of the gentleness that comes from wisdom. James gets to the root of why there is a lack of SQ, why there's a lack of wisdom-based gentleness. And here's where the second question comes in the beginning of chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Hmm. That's a good question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Nationally or interpersonally, just in terms of family and in terms of, yeah, it doesn't really limit its definition. It gives an answer to a very provocative question. This is what it says. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. He asks and answers the question. When he talks about don't they come from your desires that battle within you, elsewhere that word is translated pleasures. It comes from the word from which we get the word hedonism, pleasures. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your pleasures which battle within you, your desire for pleasures? And there's a conflict within us. And it seems to suggest, James does, that this inter Personal, intrapersonal conflict leads to interpersonal conflict. The battle in here leads to the battle out here. So what he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? We might be tempted to point a finger, but what James does, he points the finger back inside. They're really not about them. It's really not about them, whoever your them is. It's really about us. What causes fights and quarrels? It's about the battles for desires that occurs to within me. I want something, but if I don't get it, I just can't leave it there. I have to up the ante. And I kill and covet. It's not talking about murder here, but I'll assassinate somebody's reputation if it'll get me what I need. Or I will solicit or seduce somebody to be able to get what I need, not just speaking sexually. But we end up loving things and using people in order to accommodate our desires. That's what James says. Um, conflict in here, conflict out there, and the battle inside is fueled by the world's operating system. What it says in First John two, 
1 John 2, it gives the, the operating system of the world, and it, it describes it in, in fairly concise terms. What's the world when the Bible talks about the world? It's not speaking about creation and population. It's speaking about a world system, values we might call it, an operating system, the way things work. Here's what John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The cravings of sinful man literally means the desires or lusts of the flesh. The text inserts sinful, and it's implied, but that's not what it talks about. It's the lust or desires, the longings of the flesh. We tend to picture that as inherently bad, but the word for desires is not inherently bad. It's something that moves us to action. It's, it can be defined or expressed by emotions. The word emotion comes from the Latin word emotere. Emotere, that's what gets us moving. That's what motors us. So emotions are those things that get us moving, that move us in the direction of an objective. And so what he says, it talks about the cravings of sinful man. Literally what it means, it's the world fuels and encourages you only go around once in life, grab for all the gusto you can. You want it? Get it. You want it? Get it. Don't let anything get in your way. Move to apprehend the thing you want. And that's talks, what James talks about when he talks about the lust of the flesh. Um, when it talks about the lust of his eyes, it's the exact same word. And the lust of the eyes is not talking about pornography. It's talking about something that you look at. And it could be anything. It could be your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's goods, your neighbor's car. It could be your neighbor's job. You see something. It could be clothes. I see it. I want it. That's what it speaks of when it's talking about the lust of the eyes. And again, we tend to restrict it to sexual. It can include sexual desire, but that's not the thrust here. It's just, I want what I see. It talks about the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. It's about wanting what we see. It's about what pleases us to possess. If I identify that thing, well, you know what it's like. If you see something you want, I share... I like fountain pens. I don't. I like to write with them for some reason, especially extra fine tips. So fountain pens with extra fine tips. I got a fi- I got a fountain pen. the The tip is so fine that it almost scratches the paper. Now I have to break it in a little bit, but it will become my favorite. Now, I, yeah, don't get me on this. I've had the, I've even named pens. It just drives me crazy when I lose them. It drives me nuts. And so I saw and I lost a pen, a fountain pen. Yeah, that's right. And I looked, I tore everything apart. And so I said, and I am not going to get another one. I'm going to punish myself for losing it. Until I saw the advertisement. 
this pen with, are you ready for this? An extra fine tip. So, I'm no, no, I'm not going to give in. Well, maybe I'll just take a peek at it. Uh, free shipping? Oh, boy, geez, how? I mean, how can you avoid that? Free shipping? Uh, then I, I, I'd be stupid not to get it. And so then I ordered it. And naturally, then I was content. It said three to five business days. Sometimes they get there in two. <laughs> so I was out there waiting for the mailman, and he coming. Oh, you understand that. And it came, and it is wonderful. <laughs> but I found another one that adds. Uh, <laughs> you know, but isn't that it? Isn't that it? With the, we want something, and when we get it, there is pleasure. But the pleasure fades, doesn't it? I told you a story. I was in, I was sitting in a coffee shop, and. Uh, this guy was unwrapping a camera, and I watched it. And he, and he, I was kind of back so that I could look kind of. He was looking in another direction. He had sitting at a round table, and he got his coffee, and, he, and he, so he set his coffee down. You don't want to do this too fast when you unwrap something. So he kind of gets his coffee, and then you kind of see him getting ready. And then he just unwrapped it really carefully. You know, he didn't tear it in, just very carefully kind of took it out and looked at it and then took another sip of coffee and read the instruction manual and picked it up and started to take pictures. And I was watching and then came a time where, and I'm sure he had fun with the camera, but then he put it down. And you could tell that he was kind of deflated, that the opportunity to experience the new thing was over. We can get addicted to new things, to getting things, especially in our country. I'm not blowing up our country. We have a lot of freedom. We have the ability to be able to get things. And the passion to get what we want is what the Bible points to. It's a source of problems for us. That's what it indicates. Um, and because what we, well, if I had it with me, I'd show you, but I don't. Well, maybe I could get it. Because no, it's no fun to have something if we can't parade it if we can't show other people, and if I can't see you looking at my pen and you're lusting after it, I know you are. <laughs> and that's kind of the way it works. We, The world's values is possess what you want, but that doesn't stop there. Then you need to parade what you possess. Possess what you want and parade what you possess. That's the world system. When it says don't love the world or the things in the world, this is what it's talking about. We become addicted to possessing what we want and parading what we possess. Um, get and show. Timothy, Paul, in his letter to Timothy, talks about another way to characterize the world. There can be two goals. Possess what you want. What, parade what you possess. Or it can be three loves. The world is defined by two goals. Two goals? Do you remember those things? Possess and parade? Two goals? Three loves. Um, what Timothy says, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Three loves, lovers of selves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. And what it means by that is that the love, the things you love, are the things that will direct your questions. So what it 
terrible times in the last days, it, people will be dominated by these questions. What should I do? I wonder what, I wonder what job I should get. I wonder what I should do with my life. Well, will it benefit me? Will it make me money? Will it give me pleasure? Because I love myself, I love money, and I love pleasure, so that will drive my inquiry. I wonder what I, well, will it benefit me? Will it give me money? Will it give me pleasure? And, and we're going to have to look at this, because is there anything wrong with that? Is pleasure bad? Is money bad? Can't do without it. We're supposed to love ourselves. But what, it, what James is saying, the wholehearted pursuit of getting what I want becomes enslaving and addicting. And that is at the heart of what causes fights and quarrels among us. I want what I want, and you're getting in the way. So, therefore, I'm going to either eliminate you or somehow persuade you to help me get what I want. That is natural to us. It's inherent within us. The question is, how do we turn the intensity down on that? And that's what we're going to look at. Um, but let's, uh, let's look in a little bit more. God um, does want to fulfill our desires. Here's what he says. Psalm 1611, interesting verse. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You know what the afterlife is conceived as? Eternal pleasures. You know, there's a couple of pleasures. Absolutely. I guess it's going to be a gas. Heaven's going to be wonderful. We're going to be boring. We're not going to be sitting around being spiritual. Another infinite number of years to go. <laughs> they're pleasures, but they're eternal pleasures. And that's what the Bible seems to differ in. God's values are eternal. And the world's values are temporal. They don't last. We can get so caught up in possessing what doesn't last that we can forfeit what does. Isn't that what Jesus said by the question? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his own soul? In terms of investments, if I'm going to invest in a product that's going to give me a limited payback. And if I'm going to spend a lot to get that, and I'm going to forfeit something that's more valuable, that's not a really smart investment, is it? If I know this investment is only going to be valuable for a time, it's more wise to, to invest in something that will have value longer term, right? That just makes sense. And what Jesus said what does it really matter if you place your value in that which isn't going to be here a hundred years from now and forfeit your very self in pursuing that? That's a decent question. Um, when my involvement, and that's all, God's values are eternal. World values are what can be achieved and experienced here and now. God's values are what will be ex what we'll experience then and there. When my involvement is driven by what I get here and now, my values are worldly. Um, my values are worldly. So here's what the world is. I see something. I get it. I parade it. I can get it now. And that's worldly values. And what James' point is, those values fit very comfortably within the church. 
See, when we think of the world, we think of the world out there. You know them. Secular people. You know the kind I'm talking about. You know, the, the ones that live in these monstrous houses. Oh, however we categorize them, we think this is the church and that's the world. But as James uses the word, the world fits very comfortably within the church because the world is not a place, it's a system. And wherever we, do you remember the two words? Possess, parade. Can that exist within the church? By the way, did you see what I'm wearing today? (laughs) And it doesn't have to be that. It can be, we can boast about a lot of things within the church. And when that is the thing, when I get what I want within the church, I am operating by the world, even though I'm in the church. And that seems to be what James is, is getting at. Look what it says in James 4, 2 through 4. I'll read the passage at the top now. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. And then he goes on. You do not have... Because you do not ask God. Oh, that's it. That's you pray about it. And so if you pray about it, that's the ticket. But they are praying about it. And look what he says. When you ask, you do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you want on your pleasures. And there's a caveat. You know, it says in the Bible, delight in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Right? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So if we go to church, we can expect that our desires are godly, not worldly, godly, because we're in church after all. And the world is out there, and godly things happen in here. No, that's not what James is saying. What I want is in the here and now. And I might ask for something because I'm concerned about your kingdom. That's not really what I'm concerned about. Again, if I want the benefit now, and I want to be able to kind of boast about it, that's the world. Can that affect our prayer life? That's what James is saying here. Why do you ask for things and not get them? You ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get in your pleasures. And again, this hits all of us. I'm not going to point the big bony finger at you. Because this hits all of us. It's natural. That's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem, isn't it? It's natural. But it is not supernatural. I think that's what defined Jesus' prayer life. Your will be done. And he meant it. He didn't. He said, God, I want this cup to pass from me, but yet not my will, but thine be done. He he subordinated what he wanted to what God wanted. He goes on, uh, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James isn't targeting secular selfishness. He's targeting sacred selfishness. Pleasure-seeking, dressed up in Christian clothes. That's what he's targeting. Pleasure-seeking. When you walk into the door of the fellowship, 
Not when you walk out. That's what changes targeting. Um, in more extreme form, the kind of pleasure-seeking, mood-altering, expecting, that has existed in crazy forms. We were talking about it in Bible study this morning. You ever hear about holy laughter? In the 1990s, there was a phenomenon called holy laughter, and I'm going to read. Churches are once again reporting, I read an article, due to the influence of God's Spirit, spontaneous, uncontrollable laughter erupts from their congregations. Spontaneous laughter just absolutely doubles people over. And he goes on, some churches report uncontrollable weeping, falling to the floor in ecstatic trances, animal noises such as barking like dogs and roaring like lions. So I'm sitting here this morning in this seat, and we talked about it in Bible study this morning, and Tammy was at Bible study this morning. So all of a sudden she was mimicking that she had been possessed by the Spirit of God, and I'm listening to this noise. Now, I don't hear all that well. So she had to... Um, so I'm thinking, what? So I'm, I'm, I don't know if my microphone's on, and and so and then it, whoop, whoop. and then I looked over, and then she's she's being filled with that. So why am I even pointing this out? I do have a point. I do have a point. Um, that's where. Um, that's. Can I give that a word? That's ridiculous. As if what God's really about is when you're full with God, you are doubled over in mood-altering experience. Now, does God do that? But is that the evidence of being filled with God, that you are so full of getting what you want that you're exploding with laughter? I don't think so. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Please, I'm not saying... Go around gloom, despair, and agony in me. Oh, deep, you know, I don't know. No, but I don't know if Jesus did a lot of belly laughs. I don't know. I don't think so. He wasn't morose. He was direct, compassionate. I don't think, yeah, anyway, I don't care. If our prayers rise from possessing and parading, I don't know if we're going to get our, we're not going to get answers. And that's why Scripture needs to interpret Scripture. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. James says, because I think he might be addressing a teaching like this within his church. And the people in leadership at the church are saying, as long as your desires are godly, you can throw up prayers and God's going to answer them. And James says, um, no, he isn't. If this is about, and the reason why you're not getting what you want, it's really about you. It's not about God's kingdom. It's about your kingdom. And that's what he's saying to these church leaders. Does that make sense? You know, that's why uh, your best life now book on Christianity, that's a title that doesn't make much sense to me. Your best life now? Really? Really? think so. God's operating system says do nothing out of selfish ambition in Philippians 2 or vain conceit, but in humility consider other better than yourself. Selfish ambition is the word James uses. It's a, it's a campaigning agenda. And what it is, it's what James 
is dealing with in terms of the church. They're saying, come to my church. Don't go to Brett's church. Let me tell you about Brett. You know, so say if Brett and I were church leaders, here's what's happening in the people to whom James is writing. And that I'm blowing up Brett, and I'm saying, Brett, he really doesn't know the Bible well enough, so you come to my church, because I'm interested in your spirituality. And what James is pointing out, that's not really what that's driven by. That's about selfish desires. I want more people in my church. And I'm going to throw up these prayers to God, but it's not really about God. And that's what's happening. That's what selfish ambition is. It's, it's a factioning, campaigning, taking people away to myself, drawing away. And vain conceit is empty boasting. Um, that's God's value, I think. Service, not serve us. The world's value is serve us. Give me what I want. And if I get what I want, I'll stay. Um, I like the step, step seven prayer. I talk about it. This is a prayer in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. They got something right. It says, remove from me every single defect of character let me tell you what it says before them. My creator, I'm willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. And the prayer is, you don't separate your life into lights and darks. It all goes into one thing. I ask that you would have all of me, good and bad. I ask that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my now. What's it going to say? What word is it going to use? Remove every single defect of character that stands in the way of my happiness. Might say that. Holiness. Ooh, that's closer, isn't it? It doesn't use either of those words. What word does it use? Remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness. Usefulness. You know what? That's spot on. What happens in recovery sometimes? Individuals who learn about the value of usefulness with an AA go into a church expecting to hear the same thing, and it never hits them that the church, and again, I'm not blowing up every church, but that the church is about if you do this, God will give you what you want. So it ends up being about happiness. And some people who move from recovery into a church, their recovery actually takes a dive because the focus is not on usefulness anymore. It's on something more mood-altering. Does that make sense? And that's what James is addressing here. It's, it's okay, Now, if you look at this, this is a daunting task. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with this? Um, what it says, the last verse, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. That word self-controlled, bad word. It's really more reasonable, thoughtful, 
That's what the word is. It's not about controlling myself. It's being reasonable, thoughtful, reflective, not impulsive. I think about what I do. That's the word. Um, So it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live thoughtful, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This this verse, the first verse, it could either be translated one way. It talks about to all people. And that to all people could modify the grace of God has appeared to all people. Or salvation has appeared to all people, has come to all people. To all people modifies the grace of God or salvation. And the New International Version says that it modifies the grace of God appeared. So they render it, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So God's grace appealed. And you know what? That's a way to understand it. I don't think that's what the verse is saying. I think it's modifying salvation. The grace of God has appeared that brings salvation to all men. To all men. And you know what the problem is with that? It makes it too inclusive. Now, I'm not going to teach here that that God saves everyone. He doesn't. But he saves people regardless of class, race, or gender. You know who he saves? And I'm going to have to say this. It's very painful. He saves them. All of us have a them. We have a them. And we use them because it makes us feel better. You know what I mean? Well, I might deal with desires, but at least I'm not like them. (laughs) Boy, I hope they know what they're going to get when God deals with them. We are godly people, and God gives us what we want because we honor him. We have a problem with the fact that God offers salvation broadly. Isn't that the problem with the parables? So many parables, people getting what they don't deserve. I mean, how many of us understand the older brother of the prodigal son? How many of us get him? You know, he's slaving away out into the fields, and then little pipsqueak, he takes dad's inheritance and just flushes it down the toilet. No, he doesn't flush it down the toilet. He does all kinds of, you know what I mean. And then he comes back, and then he throws a party for him. How many of us would still be standing outside? I would. We don't like it when they get what they don't deserve. Um, but God saves them. I'll tell you a story before. It's a, little, it's a guy that's standing. San Francisco is walking around the Golden Gate Bridge. He saw a second man about to jump over the bridge. He stopped and said, surely it can't be that bad. And he looked him in the eyes and said, you know something? God loves you. The man about to jump got a tear in his eye. He said, are you a Christian or a Jew or a Hindu? The man said, I'm a Christian. Me too. Protestant or Catholic? Protestant. I am too. What franchise? I'm Baptist. So am I. Um, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? 
Northern Baptist. It's a miracle. I am too. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? Northern Conservative Baptist. Yeah, me too. Um, are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist? I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. Um, me too. Are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region? I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region. So am I. Are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1887 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And the guy said, die heretic, and threw him over the bridge. <laughs> it's tough for us to that that God offers salvation to them. We all have our them. We want him to give it to us because we earn it. Um, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And grace teaches us to be eager to do what is good. Did you hear that? Did you hear what I just said? you hear what I just said? How are we going to learn to say no to worldly passions? Do we need to? Do we need to develop the ability to say no? Is it a problem to be addicted to pleasure? We can't do without it. We'll talk about that in an upcoming. How can we learn to say no? What can teach us to say no? And not only teach us to say no to worldly passions, but to say yes to what is good. In the text, you know what teaches us to do that? What does it say in the beginning? What does it say? The grace of God. The grace of God teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to doing what is good. So if you're going to be a person who's going to be able to live with tension, there's only one teacher that's going to be able to pull that off. It's the grace of God. I think that's the point here. If your spirituality is legislated by what you deserve, you understand? We tend to obligate God. I deserve this. They don't. And that's why the grace of God teaches us to say yes, and it teaches us to say no. Some say the grace is very chancy, because what about obedience? What about obedience? What is it that's going to teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion? A stiff doke of fear and anger, right? A punishing God. Really? Really? That's not what this passage says. The grace of God has appeared, which brings salvation to all men. It teaches us to say no. So if we want to learn to say no, grace is going to be the tool. It, grace disciplines us. It teaches us. Not only to say no, but to say yes. Because here's what God's thing is. And I'll close with this. In fact, come on. Come on. Do you know what type of God, yes God's looking for from us? It's not, okay. Okay. It talks about eager to do what is good. And that's what God brings about. 
He wants us to learn to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to what is good, but in an eager way. And it's the grace of God, his undeserved kindness, his commitments to us, as those occupy a better place. Listen to me. As God's commitments occupy more and more of our thinking, you're going to be surprised at this. It gives us the ability to live in tension. Now, we don't like the fact that we don't have what we want, but we can live with it because I can live in a tense place if I don't live there alone. If I am connected with God's commitments, I can hold on to my frustrations and live that way a day at a time. I don't need to demand what I want because I know that I'm connected in 100 years from now a hundred years from now, you're going to ask me, Mike, what tension do you feel now? And you know what I'm going to tell you? Absolutely none. What is this place, Mike, where you are? And again, it's because through faith in his commitments, it's not something we are. You know what I'm going to say? You know what I got now? I got eternal pleasures in my hands, and they're never going to leave. Never going to leave. How'd you learn this? On here, grace teaches us to say no, to say yes. Father, we come to you and you need to do that, which we cannot do on our own. Um, Learning to say no, learning to say yes, no to ungodliness and yes to uh, what is good is something that is outside of our ability. But you say that there is something to teach us, the grace of God teaches us. So I guess I'm asking that you would enable us to see what your glory is, to see your promises to us, your commitments to us, so that as we remain in them, we find within us a growing yes and a growing no, uh, so that we could be like Jesus. Thanks for that hope.